first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. This is not just a seatbelt we're talking about. We're talking about asking people to make radical changes to their behavior that may be really counter to what they need and want in their everyday lives. And to do it not for themselves, but for others, it's a big ask. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am having the weirdest day. Like the animal in me is so unsettled right now. Like I feel like I need to flee. It's 10.50 in the morning here in Oakland, California. And it's dark. It's dark out. It is dark out and the color is red to the extent there's any color at all. And that's because the wildfires in California have blocked out the sun. And the wildfires have blocked out the sun um, and made the air acrid. At the same time that you can't go anywhere else indoors because of a plague. There are days right now where it feels like I'm living in the cinematic adaptation of the Book of Revelations. It's strange um, and it's scary. Uh, I think it is worth dwelling on that for a minute to be human right now, to have your routines, your normalcy disrupted this dramatically for this long is scary. Uh, as much as you can rationalize it and you can read the reports about it on Vox and the epidemiologists tweeting about it on Twitter and, and, and know that there are wildfires or some part of a lot of us, of me anyway, that is in a constant state of alarm because reality right now is really alarming. We've been left alone to deal with a lot of this. And, and here I'm talking primarily of coronavirus. Our country, America, has done a terrible job responding to it. We have much higher caseloads and say Canada does, much higher death rates. Uh, there is still no federal plan. I mean, six months in, there's no federal plan. That is not an accident. The plan is to not have a plan. The plan is to blame other people for what is happening. And that's meant that a set of calculations around risk that should have been shared between the public and um, individuals, a certain amount of this we should have been able to give to the collective so that the amount of risk we had to assess and manage was was lower, it's all falling on us. A tremendous amount of the risk calculations of how to live everyday life in a way that is safe for us and safe for those around us and moral have fallen on us and have fallen on us without a lot of good communication or information. So I wanted to have a conversation this week about living in the time of coronavirus. How do you, how do I as an individual make these decisions about what is safe and what is moral? And how do we weigh trade-offs? How do we not think about risk as a binary? How do we deal with the reality that this is reality for a while? And we're not going to be able to do nothing for as long as this will be around, right? I have a life, a kid. I mean, you, you have to keep on living to some degree. And at the same time, you have to do so in a way that is reasonable for yourself and those around you. It's hard and I find it scary and I find it trying. And I am constantly afraid I'm doing the wrong thing or putting someone in danger or whatever it might be. So I've been looking for somebody who's been thinking in in terms of risk and can help guide me through it and hopefully um, all, all of you through it too. And, and that person is Julia Marcus. 
Jill Marcus is an epidemiologist at Harvard. She is an expert on AIDS and HIV and the set of risk questions around that and, and how to prevent it. She writes for The Atlantic and she's written a, a, a series of pieces now that I think are talking about risk in the most compassionate and clear and thoughtful way, accepting that it's not a binary, accepting that people are going to take risks, accepting and making clear that scolding and getting angry at each other, one doesn't work, but also it's a way of feeling like we have control over something we really don't have control over. So I wanted to talk to her about just how to think about what is a framework for living in this moment. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Dr. Julia Marcus. Julia Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? We're about to have a conversation about how we're all living in this period. How are you? Uh, I am okay. Um, I'm finding myself both angry and heartbroken on a daily basis in a way that I never have experienced before. So there's just a lot of a lot of emotion and and then you know just the challenges of this time. I'm hiding in my closet right now and <laughs> um, and about to have. No childcare um, as a Friday, and uh, you know it's a it's there's a lot to navigate um, personally and uh, and also as an epidemiologist right now. You know, as an epidemiologist, six months ago, if I had asked you to predict where you'd be, where we'd be in six months, what kinds of risk and decisions we would all be making individually, would you have predicted something like this? I think depending on when exactly six months ago you would have asked me. Early in COVID is what I'm is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I I don't think I would have predicted where we are now until sometime in April. I think in March, um, I was still I was still in the camp of like uh, hopefully we'll we'll get this sorted out pretty quickly, and I think it was in early April that it became obvious not just to me but to everybody that this was not going away anytime soon. And I think that really shifted my thinking. And I think there was a big shift societally as well around needing to think about sustainability. And it took some time. And I think we still have not actually fully caught up to that in terms of you know the way we're thinking about navigating our everyday lives. Talk a bit about that. What haven't we caught up to in terms of that everyday thinking? Well, I mean, if we think back to March, there was some very binary thinking going on around what I think we're seeing as the two options. One was let's just stay home until there's a vaccine. And the other option was let's let's just go back to business as usual. And of course, there's a, a million things in between. And as I said at the time, risk is not binary and it's still not binary. And we we have gotten out of, I think, some of that binary thinking. But in a way, I think we have unfortunately continued to apply binary thinking, not just to staying at home versus business as usual, or now I think a lot of people are, are calling that the herd, herd immunity approach, but also to masks, to schools, to Sweden, to you name it, like any hot button topic right now has become dichotomized in a way that I find really concerning, especially around scientific discourse and scientific decision making, and also for pre people making everyday decisions who are trying to to navigate this. There there has to be nuance in all this. And I I feel like nuance died sometime in March. Well, probably it probably got COVID and it had I mean, in this country it already <laughs> nuance already had a lot of comorbidities. So it was it was not well set up for that. One of for, many for the infection during this time. So the, the conversation I want to have here today is about how to think about risk in this era. And, and I want to spend a moment framing it before we get, get into the details. But it seems to me, and I'd like to know if you think this is fair or unfair, that the question of risk has been shunted far more onto individuals than I would have hoped a couple of months ago, that we are sort of living in the void of where an effective policy response should be, of where effective you know, tracing and quarantining and and testing should be. And as such, um, a kind of question of risk management that might in another world not be totally gone, but would be shared between individuals and their government is now really a question that individuals are having to bear the bulk of themselves. And that's made it a much sharper question and made, it seems to me, almost all of the decisions that one can make bad, right? Like we often have very, very few good options in a situation like say with reopening schools. Do you think as a way of looking at this moment, like that's 
reasonable? I think that's exactly right. I think the burden of decision making and risk in this pandemic has been just fully transitioned from the top down to the individual. And I think it started with basically being being transitioned to the states, which then transitioned it to the local school districts, if we're talking about schools for the moment, down to the individual. And I think you can see it in the way that people talk about personal responsibility and the way that we see so much shaming about individual level behavior. And I mean, it's true that individuals have responsibility and we have responsibility in an infectious disease outbreak, I think, more than than usual in the sense that our our choices affect other people. But there's been a total abdication of responsibility at the top to create an environment in which individuals aren't burdened with that much risk and and with having to make those decisions entirely on their own and compounding that. So it's not just the policy gap. There's also a public health messaging gap. The CDC has been silent or silenced. And without that unified public health voice, I think there's so much more confusion than there has been in similar situations in the past when we have had a bold, you know, well-respected, trusted public health voice that we're hearing from on a regular basis. And and I think you can see the difference in other countries, other regions where there really is that voice. I, I think that it makes a difference in terms of public trust and and people's willingness to make sacrifices that are really difficult right now. What often feels really maddening about this moment to me is it's one thing to manage a risk you yourself face or I face myself. There are all kinds of things I do that may be a little bit risky, but if they go wrong, it will fall primarily on me. And here, many of us who don't have comorbidities and are not in a in an at-risk age band, um, I'm not saying I want to get COVID, I don't, um, and it could be dangerous for me, but um, but it's unlikely to be. But it could be very dangerous for somebody I pass it on to. We are being asked to think about risk in a very different way than we typically do. Not the risk to you, but the risk that you could pose to others by not taking care of the risk to yourself appropriately. And I find that just much harder. I find it much harder to weigh the ethics of what my actions could mean to others in terms of passing on a disease as opposed to what they could mean to me. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and how one thinks about that or how it changes thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think this is very salient on college campuses right now, where people who are somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22 are being asked to make enormous sacrifices to prevent something that is a, a very distal risk for them. I mean, as you said, they are also at risk of infection, and some of them may or will have bad outcomes. But for them, it's it's a much lower risk than let's say, to older people in the surrounding community or to their families who they live with. And asking people to to not, not just make a slight shift in their behavior. I mean, this is not, this is not just a seatbelt we're talking about. We're talking about asking people to make radical changes to their behavior that may be really counter to what they need and want in their everyday lives. And to do it not for themselves, but for others it's a big ask. And I'm not saying it's not something we should ask, but it is something that we need to consider when we make these asks. And we need to find ways of making it easier for people to make that decision without just saying, if you really cared about other people, you would do this and you're selfish if you don't. There there has to be some give there and some recognition of of what we're really asking and what's realistic and what's sustainable. Does social shaming and scolding work as a communication strategy around public health? I generally try to stay away from absolutist responses, but my, my instinct to, in terms of answering that question is to flat out say no. Scolding and shaming are toxic to public health, almost full stop, with very few exceptions. I think it's a natural instinct to want to shame somebody, I think for several reasons. One is we're watching people do what we perceive as risky. And it's not just putting themselves at risk, as we're, we were just talking about. We're, we're watching them potentially put others at risk. And there's a lot of frustration and anger that, of course, comes up in that situation. But from a public health perspective, trying to shame somebody into changing their behavior 
it doesn't work. It doesn't deter the behavior generally. For some individuals, it might, but on a, on a general population level, what it will do is actually just deter disclosure of the behavior. So if we think about what is shame doing, it's essentially saying you're a bad person for doing this. And going back to the colleges right now, you know, we're seeing plenty of examples of administrators saying you are selfish and reckless and irresponsible. And that doesn't put somebody in a place of action to change their behavior. And it also doesn't solve the root problem. So an alternative approach is to say, what's actually going on here? Like, why, why are students partying? Or why are people not wearing masks? And if you take that step back, and ask that question, you you might come up with a very different approach. Because let's say in the case of college students, you conclude, well, they really need to socialize. And they, they actually really need to have fun. They're like 19 years old. And this is what 19-year-olds do. So then the question becomes, how do we help them meet those needs in a way that's safer? And that is far more productive in public health. We see it for HIV prevention, for STIs, for substance use. It's And it's the same situation here with COVID, where we really need to be thinking about how we can help people meet their needs, not how we can shame them into changing their behavior. One thing that struck me as really, as you could see a weakness in the shaming strategy, I still get emails all the time, including, by the way, from family members about Black Lives Matter protests where people weren't wearing masks. And the emails all operate on a hypocrisy argument. They say, you know, all these liberals out there, it's whenever I write an article that talks about masking, um, all these liberals out there were saying people should wear masks. But then when the protesters went out and didn't wear masks, well, what were they saying and where were they then? And when you make people defensive and feel bad, they look for ways to feel better. They look for ways to show that they're not bad. You're the bad one. And you know, we can like the BLM protests do not seem to have been a a, a big spreading event, um, but nevertheless, like they they became a big like political um, event in the communication around, around coronavirus because people were already angry and they were looking at a way to, to 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 even the score. And so it just it to me suggested and 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 continue to show. I've been very uncomfortable with a lot of the discourse in this and people putting up images on Twitter of folks on a be on beaches and how dare they all be on beaches. We need to get people to um, follow the rules to the extent that is, you know, doable in their lives. But the more you try to be absolutist, the more you set yourself up for a fall because you probably are not going to be perfect. And as soon as you're not perfect, they're going to come back at you really hard. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you hit on something there, which is the anger that's behind a lot of this. And when we think about where, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, I'm an epidemiologist, but my understanding is that anger often follows fear. So we're we're living in a time with a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I think especially um, at the beginning, those were the dominant emotions that, that people were feeling. And the way that we get control of fear, which is driven by this sense of uncertainty, is when we, we feel like the circumstances are uncertain, we put the locus of control on individuals because then we can be angry at people and it gives us a sense of control. Like, I see what the problem is. It's those people who are on the beach and it's those people who are not wearing masks. And and I think especially the the, the beaches um, are particularly interesting in terms of being a source of outrage because they're actually fairly low risk. But I think people fixate on them because it's where people go and en- enjoy themselves and have frivolous fun in a pandemic, which is, um, I think, a source of outrage. So I think there's this this anger under underlying a lot of this that gets us so far away from public health and evidence and actually effective approaches to shifting behavior and into a dynamic that's much more polarized and toxic and often moralistic in a way that's really unhelpful. So uh, as we move into some of the behaviors, I wanted to try out a like a like a mock equation on you that I, that I've been playing with, which is that it seems to me that for a lot of questions, like the way to think about risk is something like, it's the risk of an individual action times the local prevalence of coronavirus divided by your area's ability to get an outbreak back under control. Like I like going to um, shows. I'm a big fan of electronic music and I go out in my normal life um, back in the day. I used to go out to, to shows a lot. The risk of catching coronavirus at a show like that is incredibly high, but there was no coronavirus. 
So, um, or no, uh, no COVID-19. Um, there are other coronaviruses, I guess. Um, and so like it was low risk. Now, because the local prevalence is higher, there'd be a very high risk. But even if you were then in a place where like local prevalence is lower, there's also this question of if things got out of control, could you handle it, right? Could your could your locality get it back under control through contact tracing and quarantining and other things? And it seems like those are the three things. So like what you're dealing with as an individual, then what's around you, and then how effective the policy response can be. And as we've talked about, the policy response in most places right now is pretty ineffective. So you're really just dealing with this question of how risky is the individual action times how prevalent is COVID in your area? Does that seem right or are the ways you would change or add to that? Yeah, I like that framework and I would maybe add two things to it. One thing I would add is your own personal vulnerability to the, to having a bad outcome from the virus. So the, your risk equation may look very different if you're 20 um, versus if you're 80. Um, and I think that probably needs to be factored in as well as the vulnerability of the people you're going to be interacting with. But I agree with you that thinking about local community spread and thinking about the the risk of the activity itself are essential pieces of that equation. The other thing that I would add that I think, you know, I think it's not my role as an epidemiologist to be assessing, but I think is an important part of these decisions that needs to be recognized is the benefits part of the equation. We often talk about risk assessment and we we forget that people are making these decisions about risk and they're weighing them against the benefits. And that plays a huge role in what decision gets made and whether it's, you know, whether it feels to that person like it's worth the risk. And actually, we're making those decisions now on a societal level. You know, is the risk of community transmission, potential community transmission worth opening elementary schools? You know, is it worth opening gyms? And that becomes a much harder decision to make. And it's, I think, become unclear who should be making those decisions at, on a on a community level. But, you know, I think it's worth also thinking about how we think about that individually in our everyday lives. How, how do we think about benefit individually or societally? Because it occurs to me that as bad as we are talking about risk, we're worse at talking about benefit. I think we can sort of grok it when it comes to children going to school because we can talk about the, you know, the long-term economic benefits to them and their parents need to work. We're 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 reasonably good at talking about this when it has a monetary implication, a financial implication. But people want to see their friends, they want to see their families, they want to date if they're alone, they want to get um away from this house they've been in now, you know, locked in for four or five or six months. How do you think about benefits and, and weighing them? Because I often find people are very resistant to the idea that anything that is not a um, like a life or death question should be a benefit worth talking about in the conversation. I think we have a very hard time talking about benefits, partly because in this particular society, and I mean in the U.S. especially, I think we have a hard time with things that are perceived as pleasures in life. And I see this a lot in my own research as somebody who works on HIV and the barriers to, to ending the HIV epidemic. I think that our resistance to pleasure and our devaluation of pleasure is actually a big part of that and the way that we stigmatize pleasure. And, you know, talking about the beaches, I think that's that's one of many examples that we've seen in this in this pandemic where we devalue something that is perceived as frivolous. And I think that extends to other aspects of life that are really about well-being, social well-being um, and social connection and, you know, People see that as like fun and not essential. You know, we at the beginning in March, we decided what was essential and what wasn't and grocery stores were essential, but social connection was not. And I think that that's something that can work for a short period of time. But in the long term, we actually need those connections and we we need pleasure in life. And that that should be essential. And so then if we come from that framework, we can start to ask, like, how how do we enjoy our lives in a pandemic while keeping our risk as low as possible. And I think that really changes both the questions we ask and the the answers in terms of our individual decision making and our policy decision making. And it makes them much more realistic and sustainable and humane in the end. How different 
right now is the risk and benefit calculation. If you live in a place like Germany or South Korea, where the virus is more under control, but obviously not completely, how different would my everyday life be in a country with a more competent response? The risk part of the equation, it looks really different in those settings because that key element of, you know, what is the local community spread is going to, is going to factor in so much less. And I, I think that that has changed my decisions as well. Um, that, that the way that I live my everyday life has shifted as community spread has decreased in my area. And it, it may change again if, if it increases. And I think that's appropriate. Yes, Clancho will be back after a short break. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. So let's talk a bit about what we've actually learned here. What are behaviors or activities where we tend to overestimate their coronavirus risk in your experience? And what are things where we tend to underestimate the danger? Like what is off in our social and societal risk perception? That's a hard question to answer in a generalized way, because I think everyone is assessing risk differently and policy level decisions about risk differ wildly depending on the setting because we don't have a national response. We have a, we have many local responses that look very different. And first, if we take the, the policy level, we see situations like as of a few weeks ago in Hawaii, there were indoor restaurants and gyms open, but public outdoor spaces were closed, like beaches and hiking trails. And that struck me as really backwards. And I do think we see some of that on an individual level as well, where we have some people who are still disinfecting their groceries, even though there has been little to no evidence of fomite transmission. I of course, would not say it's impossible, but it appears to be a low risk. And then we have people who are having crowded indoor gatherings with family because they feel like family is probably pretty safe and they're not sort of registering that as potentially risky or perhaps the benefits of that gathering to them outweigh the risk and they actually are assessing the risk appropriately. So I don't think there's one way that we are assessing risk in the wrong way. I think it, it you know, there's just sort of a variety of <laughs> mis, misperceptions around risk. And, and that's normal. I mean, I see it in HIV as well. And we, we are not robots. We are human beings. And we are, we're not going to assess things perfectly all the time. Well, one thing that we'll, we'll get into some specific places and, and, and talk about the risks of, of, of different activities. But let me talk about this from maybe a, a slightly different direction, which is you mentioned the way many of us, myself included, were disinfecting groceries a couple of months ago, and now it seems that surface transmission is not the key thing, and it has much more to do with aerosol transmission. What are things that compared to four or five months ago are less risky than we thought then or feared then? And what are things that now seem to be more risky than we had initially understood? Like, How has the understanding scientifically changed? I don't think it has changed radically, but I do think there is more of an understanding now than there was early on that outdoors is far lower risk for transmission than indoors. And I think that that's, you know, that that makes sense based on what we know about other respiratory viruses. And, and it's not shocking, but I think that there is just by by virtue of time and accumulation of of evidence or lack of lack of accumulation of evidence of outdoor transmission i think we now feel more comfortable with outdoors and also i mean the the black lives matter protests as well were an example of very large outdoor gatherings that were i think largely masked 
that suggested that that actually outdoors was low risk for transmission, even in a crowded setting where people were mostly masked. One thing that I would say seems to be perhaps perceived to be more of a risk now than than uh, than it was months ago would be issues around ventilation. And I think that now there's a greater understanding that just being six feet apart from somebody in a, an enclosed indoor setting may not be enough. And it comes back to those those binaries that we create as a way to help ourselves make decisions and have a framework and have metrics that we can work around. But there's no magic number there. And I think especially indoors, it's becoming clearer that in an indoor setting, our, our distancing may not be enough. The one other place that I know at this point has become a bit banal to talk about, but you go back to the beginning of this crisis and you have the Surgeon General telling people to stop buying masks. And I recognize he was trying to uh, retain PPE for, for frontline responders to some degree, but there was a in journalism, we were getting a lot of signals from um, institutions to not worry that much about masks. And then very quickly that changes. And now it seems from my read of the evidence that masking is often the single most effective thing people can do if they are going to be near others in any kind of enclosed space. What is your sense of how much protection masks do or don't afford at this point? I think it's Going back to that binary where we want to be careful about assuming that masks are a any kind of, you know, silver bullet here. But I think it's clear that they provide important protection, especially in indoor settings and when you're you're close to people. But I think what I have concerns about is that tendency toward absolutism that has come up around masks as well, with some people saying we need to mandate masks at all times, anytime that you're out of your house. And I think that that kind of heavy handedness that is not evidence based can actually push people away from public health. And, you know, so now we see people who are opposed to masks saying, I see people who are walking around wearing masks and they're not anywhere near anyone. And it just like makes me so angry because it's not evidence-based. And there's some truth to that in the sense that you really don't need to be wearing a mask when you're 60 feet away from people. But if you're close to them, yeah, absolutely. Wear a mask. It is not going to be 100% effective, but it's it's certainly better than not wearing a mask. And especially indoors, it, it becomes particularly important. So I think what's challenging here is these nuances that we really want to be able to say, as Robert Redfield said recently, if we all wore masks for the next four to six weeks, this would just go away. When in fact, a lot of transmission is happening in households, and that's going to be the place where people are least likely to wear masks. So, you know, there needs to be some realism and nuance in our discussions while we still are encouraging people to adopt these things that are are going to offer some protection, if not, you know, although not foolproof. I want to pick up on what you just said about households, because that's been one of the really heartbreaking dimensions of this crisis is the way people can end up on some level being, but certainly feeling responsible for a death of a loved one. And it's been very, very hard to hold households apart from each other. And for real reasons. I mean, I have an 18-month-old and it just, I, I it can't be the case. It can't be the case that his grandparents don't get to see him for how many, however many years. It can't be. On the other hand, none of them live right here. And so for any of us to get to any of the others, we're going to have to travel somehow. And even like my family lives in California, so we can drive, but like at some, at some point, you know, you got to get out of the car and go to the restaurant. Like there are all these things that are really tough. How do you think about the risks and benefits trade-offs within families? Because it both like it, it poses such terrible, just real and emotional risk. And on the other hand, I mean, families are pretty, I would call family an essential part of life. And if we don't have a way of getting this under control for another year or two, like they're not going to stop seeing their families and they haven't, which we see already in the transmission um, statistics and tracing. So, so how do you approach that question? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So first I'll say in terms of household transmission, some of that, as you said, is, is happening for, or as you implied, you know, through family gatherings. Some of it may just be happening in households of people who live together, especially in crowded households where people can't actually isolate when they do become infected. And so that's actually a problem that 
desperately needs to be solved, which is giving people a safe place where they can isolate, especially people who live in crowded households. But then there's this other question you're talking about, which is how do we make these decisions about seeing family that are outside of our own household unit? And I think it does come back to that risk-benefit equation, which is Are you at a point where, as you said, with your family, it is just not acceptable for your 18-month-old to not see their grandparents um, for the next year? And if that's the case, then the question becomes, how can we do this as safely as possible? So I think it's it's about thinking about what, what are the things I'm willing to live with here and what are the things I'm not willing to live with, both in terms of risk and also in, in terms of those benefits that are, are really important to consider. And, and how do you do that? I mean, should people quarantine for a while before seeing a vulnerable relative? I mean, what are what are specific things that really do seem, recognizing its trade-offs, like what are some other trade-offs somebody can make so that they can uh, take something that they feel is important and do it more safely? Yeah, so I, maybe I'll tell you about a conversation that I had recently with my father-in-law, who is older um, and lives locally, um, but was really struggling in his own life with feeling like he just had nothing he was really looking forward to on an everyday basis, that he was not getting to engage in life in the way that he wanted. And I think that that's particularly challenging for people who are closer to the end of their lives. And it's something that we're not really talking about right now enough, I think. Um, the challenges that are unique to older people right now who really can't take much risk but are also wondering, you know, is this really how I'm going to live the rest of my years? And, and how, you know, how can I see my my extended family? And so the conversation that we had was around what are the risks that are really worth it to him? So what are some small risks that he can take that are so important that they are worth it? And those may look like seeing grandkids outdoors in the yard, you know, with substantial distance, maybe masks making that as low risk as possible, but taking a small risk because it's so important. And then what are the risks that are really not that important? You know, he asked, like, can it? Can I go back to Home Depot? Can I go to the grocery store? And I asked him, does that really bring you joy? And he he realized, no, that's not that's not a risk that I need to take. But there are risks that I do need to take. And, and that's, I think, where thinking about the benefits explicitly can really help with guiding those decisions. And again, that's like, this is not my expertise as an epidemiologist talking. This is really just the way that I see decision making. And the reason I think it's important to bring in the benefits part of the equation explicitly. How do you think about travel? What have we learned on the the dangers there or things safer than we feared? I mean, is travel a possibility for people or is it just not? I mean, it's certainly a possibility. And I think airplanes are are actually lower risk than than one might think. Um, which doesn't mean there's zero risk, but particularly when you have some distancing on airplanes, so lower density of people and with masks, and the the air transfer on airplanes is such that there is not as much risk as you might have in another enclosed setting that's not an air not an airplane. But of course, there needs to be some precautions taken. And then you have the challenge, let's say in your situation, if you go visit older relatives, you have the challenge of arriving and wondering, do I now need to quarantine because I was potentially exposed while traveling? And there's no easy answer to these questions. And I I think it's just a matter of trying to figure out what is practical, what can you actually do? Um, You know, it's a lot to ask to say, quarantine for two weeks before and then quarantine for two weeks after you arrive somewhere (laughs) before you see your relatives. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no easy answer. One of the things that I think has been the most politically and socially difficult are the places where a policy judgment we make reveals how differently we value something than somebody else does or than another group does. And I think one of the real hot cleavages of this has been around um, houses of worship, that there's been a lot of anger that uh, different states have opened. Some things that people feel are, are, are inessential, right? Like in San Francisco, has been very careful um, where, where I am, but you can go hang out at an outside bar uh, if you want. And at the same time, you know, churches have been closed. And like that makes sense if you're uh, an atheist who thinks like that's a 
like a, a nice social event, but but not a real thing. And it doesn't it doesn't make sense if that is the core of your belief system. Um, how do you think about houses of worship in all this, and and how have treated them uh, in policy? Yeah, I don't see any reason why a church shouldn't be operating outdoors in the same way that a bar is operating outdoors. I mean, from from an epidemiological perspective, I would say let's move everything outdoors as much as we can and really be cautious about indoor spaces, especially uh, actually I would I would think that bars and churches are somewhat comparable in the sense that people tend to be talking really loudly in bars because there's loud music and you know it's a cl- an enclosed space with a lot of people and so is a church and I have no value judgment about one being more essential than the other. I actually think bars are an important part of society. It's where people socially connect. It's where they have fun. And obviously, churches are important as well for social connection, for spiritual connection. But in terms of risk, I think they're fairly comparable. And we should be supporting these businesses and these institutions with moving their their services outdoors as much as we can. And when they can't, if, they're, if there's no way for a bar to operate outdoors, um, then that that business needs to be supported in some way while it remains closed. Desert Lancho will return after a quick message from our sponsors. One of the things that seems to me to be difficult in our conversation is I think people have trouble sometimes admitting and showing empathy for the fact that there might be a situation where all of the options are actually bad. And this feels really true to me around schooling, that there's an increasingly angry debate about whether or not schools will reopen in different jurisdictions. Um, And there are a lot of pieces to that, um, that it seems like children have a lower carrier rate, but not zero. Certainly teachers can be infected and also infected by each other. There is a real cost to children, particularly young children being kept out of school and and trying to do home learning that doesn't seem to work as well for them. And one thing that I sometimes wish when people were talking about this is simply for the conversation to take place with a little bit more recognition that in areas where there is a lot of prevalence, there just isn't going to be a good answer. Like whichever answer people are going to choose is going to be bad. And on the other hand, it will be worse for some people, right? Potentially like a, a teacher. How have you thought about both like the what we should do on schools, but also how we can have a conversation over something so fraught in a way that doesn't tear us apart? Oh, it's such a good question. And in disclosure, I'm coming at this both as an epidemiologist and as a parent of a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And I live in an area with very low community spread. And my first grader will be in school two mornings a week in person and otherwise remote. And yeah, I mean, I think what I'm going to say applies beyond schools, but I agree that schools are particularly fraught. I worry we have lost some of our ability to hear each other, to really listen to each other. And, And I think some of that is about fear and some of it is also about just sort of the, the abdication of responsibility at the top. So we all feel abandoned in this. And that's that's me as a parent <laughs> speaking. I Where is the federal support for school districts? Why is every school district figuring this out entirely on their own with local epidemiologists desperately trying to help and everybody just being totally overwhelmed and 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 just so angry and so fearful? And there's no way to have an actual evidence-based, rational discussion in that environment with that much fear and anger and uncertainty and and feelings of abandonment. And so what, uh, uh, just as speaking now as an epidemiologist, do you think the schools around you should be open? I mean, what, what do you think is the right risk trade-off here? Because, I mean, there is a real cost to young children not being in school, not being able to see Friends, and I also worry that one of the things happening, we see it some some with the pods that some parents are beginning to create, is that kids are getting pushed into other situations, which maybe you know are not going to have the resources to to be watched. Right? It's not like every parent can just keep their children home all day. Sometimes I think we imagine the alternative to opening something, and I don't actually have a super strong view on this one, but sometimes I think we imagine the alternative to opening something is people follow perfect epidemiological uh, guidelines. And in fact, they're cobbling together 
solutions that may be even more imperfect. So like, what is your, what is your policy view on this one? Well, I think you're exactly right. And I am a perfect example of that in the sense that my son will be in person two mornings a week, and then he will be in aftercare that's provided at the school. And there will be a whole different social network with the kids mixing across grades. And then on the three remote days, we are going to have to figure out some other sort of childcare because both of us work and it will be maybe sharing with another family to some extent because uh, there's no way I I don't really want my kid just sitting in front of a computer all day by himself and then maybe with some professional help. So, I mean, you get the point. It's like, how many social networks are we creating by trying to keep kids and teachers from mixing at schools? And I wonder about this hybrid approach, and I think it might be a way that we default to some middle ground that feels like, surely the middle ground is the best option here, but <laughs> but I actually think our instincts might be off. And I think we're also not necessarily using all the evidence that we have in terms of what has happened in other countries. And I think there are also ways to do this that are outside of the box that I, I've been frustrated to see not happening, like outdoor learning in, in some places that have the outdoor space to do it. And so, for example, in my community, private schools are opening, fully opening in person with outdoor learning. Public schools are not. And there's the education gap happening in front of our eyes, let alone the people who cannot afford to get additional childcare, who cannot work at home. I mean, it's really a disaster on all levels. What is the evidence from other countries where they've been doing this? What do you what do you think that shows on schooling? Well, I think it shows that you need to have risk mitigation strategies in the schools to prevent large outbreaks. I, I think that that's clear. I think it also shows that with those risk mitigation strategies, kids are at low risk and that teachers, at least in Sweden, where elementary and middle schools stayed open the entire time, teachers were at the same risk of infection as other working adults. And I think there's still some question about what happens in the households of those kids. But it's clear that you can mitigate transmission in schools if you adopt prevention strategies like masks and, you know, uh, physical distancing, which of course is going to require some reduced capacity. But this is where I'm wondering, like, are we not, are we not thinking outside of the box here enough? And not just with indoor learning, you know, libraries are closed right now in my community and there are libraries everywhere. Why are we not moving kids into libraries? Like I, it just seems to me that there's just a little bit of creative thinking that could go on here. And of course I don't, want to oversimplify. And I recognize that there are some enormous challenges that school districts are facing and some very strong voices that they are navigating and hearing and needing to listen to. And so, you know, it's easy for me to say, <laughs> can't we just put the schools, in, you know, move some of the kids into the libraries and put them under tents? But this is a problem that we desperately need to solve because there are enormous harms, I think, to not just having schools closed, but the inequities that are going to result. This feels to me like a place where all or nothing messaging has really hurt. My sense of the way a lot of the political system, but, but also the public has absorbed this is we initially went into lockdowns. And it's a pretty clear message, like don't leave the house uh, if you can possibly avoid it. And then we've been opening up kind of so far, but with very, very bad communication about what that means and what is safe and what is unsafe. And something I was thinking about while you're talking about the, the schooling question is it has always seemed to me that instead of this unbelievably inconsistent um, guidance and communication going in and out, that it would have been good to build out a couple like principles that seemed to me to apply to everything. And, and I wanted to, to try this out on you and then see what you would add or subtract. But one thing is just anything that can move outdoors should. It really, really seems that at this point, given that we know people are going to do something, that they're not going to stay in their house all the time, that if we can get them outside as opposed to inside, it will be better. And like we should be almost permissive with outside activities. 
uh, like making permitting for anything like that very easy, like really, really urging it so people are not um, driven inside. And then masking when you're around other people, but also something related to what we were talking about with the schooling and then the ad hoc situations a lot of families are under that you're going to see people like at this point, it's going on too long that you're not going to. And it seems like it would be valuable for that to be a stable set of people. So if you can like have a class of kids, it's 12 kids and all the families are in it and they, you know, like the ask is to try to be more limited around that. So that can hold stable and not everybody has to get sent home because there was a COVID outbreak. Like that would be valuable too. That I don't know. It seems to me like there could have been like five or seven things like this that should have been the principles and we should have been almost restructuring society around for a while. And instead, we're just fighting over every individual case endlessly with no resolution and a million different plans in a million different places. Yeah. I mean, you summed it up beautifully. (laughs) I think that's exactly what's happening. And I couldn't agree more about outdoor spaces. In epidemiology, when we talk about relative risk and we look at various causes and effects. We rarely see relative risks above like 1.5 or 2, you know, like it's twice the risk in this setting versus this setting or with this drug versus that drug. When we talk about outdoor risk of transmission versus indoor, we're talking about like 20 times difference um, with indoor risk being 20 times higher. So it's just a huge prevention opportunity And as you said, we are not going to stop interacting as human beings. And so let's find ways to keep our contacts at a minimum and keep them outdoors. And between those two things, if we if we work with that framework, I think there's a lot we can do. And there's a lot we can do that is sustainable, more sustainable than the approach we are currently taking, which I think you summed up well as being fragmented and unproductive. I was watching the Republican convention the other week, and something that felt very laced through it was the hoping for a miracle. Mike Pence saying, Joe Biden says there won't be a miracle, but we're a nation of miracles, and vaccines are coming faster than anybody expected. When he actually said, we're a nation of miracles, I thought, oh my God, that is the plan, a miracle. <laughs> it, it's, it's, I'm not kidding. I mean, it, it seems to me that there remains also friction over this question of, is this going to be to some degree or another our reality for some time and we need to change society pretty dramatically to adapt to it? Or are we in the final months of a temporary disruption and in November, the Abbott Lab rapid tests are going to come out and you know hope we'll have a vaccine of some kind by the end of the year and a Three weeks later, everybody will get a jab in the arm and that'll be the end of this. That there's like a very different way you look at things if you're planning for the next two years versus if you're planning for the next four months um, and just trying to survive through them. What do you think we're planning for? I can tell you what I think we should be planning for. Yes, which, what should we be planning for? <laughs> which is the two the two year option. I and I don't know if it's two years, I don't know if it's a year, I don't know, you know, I can't give you an exact time frame, but I think that regardless. We should be planning for two years because that really changes our approach. And I really think, I mean, I've been talking about this for months. I think we have to be thinking about what makes our lives sustainable and realistic and and really livable. And it may not take such radical changes if we do this right. And I fear we are not doing it right when we, what you're describing is magical thinking, really. So even if we had miracle thinking, <laughs> miracle thinking, exactly. Um, even if we had a, a rapid test and we had a vaccine, it's not. This is not an overnight solution. So I'm an HIV prevention researcher, and I work on pre-exposure prophylaxis, a daily pill that prevents HIV. It's nearly 100 percent effective, and it's been around since 2012. And we have yet to see solid evidence that it's having a population level impact. So between PrEP and pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP and antiretroviral medications that fully prevent transmission from somebody who already has the virus. We really should be able to end HIV by now, but we're not. And the reason is that there are implementation challenges. It's never as simple as we have this thing, it works great, 
now we can just solve this problem. And I think that the people who work on implementation are maybe seeing things a bit differently in the sense that we see all the structural and social and environmental barriers to implementing a, a new prevention strategy and to implementing it equitably, which is often the real challenge, especially when risk is is not equitable. It becomes really problematic when your delivery is not of a, of a intervention is not equitable. So I really think it is magical thinking to say within a few months we're we're going to solve this problem and it's going to be right before the election <laughs> and um you know i think that 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 approach is probably more politically driven than scientifically driven driven as a person who's worked on implementation can you really paint this picture for me i think people have one in their heads the vague idea that a vaccine is coming and maybe that'll be a miracle cure and then have also maybe heard well maybe it'll be harder there'll be supply chain disruptions like do we have the glass for the you know the liquid to be transported what do you think is a kind of a reasonable hypothetical modal vaccine case like all right so a vaccine is invented but it's only so effective like what happens then like what do you what do you fear will be the reality that underperforms the hope for a miracle and 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 what would be the constraints on it actually playing out as a miracle well so i'm not a vaccine expert so i'll say that as a disclaimer but first you have to think about vaccine effectiveness you know i give the example of prep being 99% effective in preventing hiv that's not what we're going to see here Hopefully, there will be a vaccine with some level of of protection. What do we see usually? Like, what are what are what are those, like the flu vaccines level of effectiveness? The flu vaccine effectiveness varies year to year, but you know it's not ninety nine percent. Let's say one year it'll be forty to fifty percent effective, and let's say that's what we get here. And then there are questions of the supply, so it needs to be produced at, at a massive level. And then delivery. How do you get it to people? How do you make it accessible? Who's going to get it first? And that actually, there is work actively being done that that is coming out now around, you know, what who would be prioritized for a vaccine when it comes out. But I think there's a lot of implementation questions and challenges there. And then on top of that, there may be some resistance and some lack of trust. And especially if a vaccine um, is rushed through the process of, you know, determining safety and effectiveness. We may see some resistance to to taking it, and that becomes another implementation challenge. So there has to be this like biobehavioral approach that accounts for both the effectiveness of the intervention, but also the behavioral and you know environmental questions about how it will be adopted. I saw a poll recently that said something like 40% of Americans would be skeptical of taking a coronavirus vaccine because they wouldn't trust it. And I think up to this point in the pandemic, we've associated skepticism of interventions with people on the right. Among people who strongly disapprove of Trump, 93% think masks are effective. And among people who strongly approve of Trump, only 65% think masks are effective. But there's been a lot of upset and anger about the way Trump is seen to be politicizing the regulatory process here and, and rushing things through and promoting cures that don't actually work. And if they do that, I do wonder if we're not going to see a lot of resistance on the left as people are afraid that they've pushed something out before we know what its effects really will be. And so you're actually going to have people on the, the the left be the folks who are like, I don't know that I want to take this vaccine until we see a little bit more on like how it operates out in the real world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there could definitely be resistance on both sides in terms of political sides in the way that in general people who are vaccine hesitant are not necessarily it's not necessarily a bipartisan issue um i think it spans the political spectrum while i think it's important to be assessing vaccine hesitancy now and making sure that we do everything we can to build and sustain trust i, I I don't think the polls done now necessarily reflect what's going to happen when a vaccine comes out. And I don't mean that we should not be doing everything we can to ensure that the process is followed with as much integrity as possible. But I, I'm 
I'm just not as concerned about those polls that are projecting to a time that is many months from now, if it happens at all. Is there anything else coming or that you're hoping for that you think could make a big difference that has made a big difference in other public health efforts? You've been talking about, you know, the the sort of biosocial dimension. Anything in terms of leadership? Is there people think about a vaccine as the technology we need, but is there any other social political technology that we need but don't have, but you think we could develop? I mean, there's certainly rapid testing. Maybe we could have better masks, but like honestly, there are probably 20 policy level interventions that need to happen that are not happening. <laughs> um, and and I don't think any one of these, you know, rapid testing masks, like uh, uh, vaccine, I mean, they're all important. But we also need to be thinking about how people can safely isolate. I mean, people are still getting infected when they go to work in food processing plants. People are getting infected in prisons. And we're not really doing a whole lot about that as far as I can tell. I worry also about the social support that is generally kind of expiring now and what's going to happen over these next months as people feel even less supported than they have until now. And, and as we continue to not really address occupational and household risks that are deeply inequitable um, because we're, we're, I think, often distracted by things that may be less concerning, like a group of people gathering on the beach. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to say that that's, you know, it's one versus the other, but there's no simple answer to the question of like, what is the thing coming that's going to save us? It's actually just a whole lot of hard public health and policy work. And you know, hopefully that could happen after an election, but um, I, I don't, I don't know what will make it happen necessarily. What are the top few policies that you think need to be implemented that haven't been? So I, I don't want to speak beyond my expertise, which is not pandemic response. <laughs> so you know, I'll just say I worry that our interventions to date have not addressed the inequities that are driving this pandemic. That when we ask a whole population of people to stay home, what we're actually doing is asking wealthier people to work at home while lower income people continue to work and continue to be exposed in their households to people who are working. And that we have not solved that problem. It just continues. So I I, I don't know what the solution is. But I think that our focus would be more productive if it were on those inequities, because that is where risk is. And let me um, end our questioning on a more sort of human to human note. You're somebody who your expertise is in communicating about risk management and um, harm reduction. A lot of people have the experience in their lives right now of either being talked to by somebody trying to change their risk perceptions or having somebody in their lives who they need to talk to or trying to talk to about the risks they're taking or um, the way they might be exposing others in their network to harm. How do you, like, what, what, how should those conversations be approached? What do we know works to the extent anything does um, for those conversations to be like successful and productive and not just the beginning of a, of a rift between two people? Yeah, I think as much as we can really listen and really try to understand where people are coming from, those conversations end up being more productive. And that's something I've been talking about in terms of public health messaging, that when we take a step back and ask, why is this person saying and doing this? And how can I help them you know, adopt a, a lower risk behavior or, you know, overcome a barrier to being safer in their lives, then things end up being much more productive. And I think that that can apply on an individual level as well. And I think also recognizing that we are in a deeply uncertain and scary situation and that that can really bring about a lot of anger and trying to just be aware of that and, and, remember our humanity in all of this. I think what scares me most right now and has been 
really unsettling to me for many months now is that I, I feel like we have stopped seeing each other first and foremost as human beings and that we're really seeing each other as vectors of disease. And once that happens, we lose so much in terms of our ability to relate to each other, to connect and to to make progress in this situation. And so I think as much as people can remember that we are all human beings, as as you know, cheesy as that sounds, um, we are more than vectors of disease that I think will will save us. I'm gonna get a bumper sticker for my car, like I am more than just a vector of disease <laughs> or a shirt. We can have I am more than a vector of disease shirts. So then let me ask you the question we always used to end the show, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Well, um, you know, thinking about the power of listening to people and and empathy. Um, these are three books that came to mind for me. One is a book that I have loved for, for so long. It's called Momo, um, and it's by the same author who wrote The NeverEnding Story, Michael Ende. It's really um, a beautiful story that seems like it's a fantasy for children, but it's actually very much, I think, appropriate for adults. I also would recommend Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, um, which is her, it's just a compilation of her advice column, Dear Sugar, and really just a beautiful, humane book that was such a pleasure to read. And then from a public health perspective, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fademan is, I, I think, a, an amazing testament to the need for empathy in public health and medicine. Um, and I, I think that that's something we could all use right now. Julia Marcus, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Dr. Julia Marcus for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Shows, Vox Media podcast production. 